In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Spectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And first off, we want to give a hearty apology for not putting out an episode last week. It's one of those weird things where we just could not get our schedules to line up. Like, yeah, it was just impossible. So sorry yeah. for skipping a week. Hope we didn't miss us too bad. But, you know, uh, separation makes the heart grow fonder, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it makes me really excited for today's episode, especially with all the subjects we're talking about. This was a very research-intensive episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are we talking about today, Michael? So today, we have got a really exciting episode. Uh, First, we're going to be delving into um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that'll be divided into two segments because there is a ton to talk about there. Um, and then we will also talk about the uh, January 6th commission and the Capitol riots, provide a bit of an update and talk about, you know, what the commission is and and why it's super fucking nuts that that <laughs> <laughs> that that got filibustered. This first one's going to be a hornet's nest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we will attempt to uh, and uh, deal with it with with uh, a light touch. And as always, if you like the show and you want to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theperspectrum and throw us a couple bucks. You'll get access to some exclusive patron content and it'll help support the show. Yeah. And speaking of things with a light touch, Michael, what are the COVID numbers? (laughs) All right. So worldwide at this point, we've had 172 million people that have gotten COVID, which is up from 169 million a week ago which is about 3 million new cases uh, in a week. Uh, This is back down, the the daily average new cases is back down um, to around February levels after spiking throughout April. Um, So far, 3.7 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 3.6 million last week, which is about a 2.2% increase in total deaths or about 50,000 new deaths. So far in the world, 26 doses have gone out for every 100 people. Um, Now, one thing I do want to call out about this particular metric that we've mentioned a few times on the pod is that uh, at this point, a lot of the shots that are out there are two dose vaccines for full vaccination. So for those, if those, if, you know, if, if every vaccine was a two dose vaccine, you'd have to have 200 doses for every 100 people for everyone to be fully vaccinated. So, you know, the number is, is a little bit deceiving, you know, saying 26 per 100, um, because we really need, you know, not quite almost double that, um, in order to be fully vaccinated. Mm. Um, in the U S at this point, 34.1 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 33.9 million people last week, which is about a 0.3% increase in total cases or about 268,000 new cases this week, which is actually pretty damn low. You know, a third of a percentage increase in a week is is some of the lowest we've seen. 
Um, and our daily average new case rate is down to the level where it was in like July 2020, which <laughs> if you think back to July, you probably thought we had a lot of cases, but relative to the spikes we've had in, you know, uh, the end of 2020 and, and uh, you know, we're in much better shape. Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, 611,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 605,000 last week. So that's about 6,000 new deaths. Um, which if you annualize it is about 300,000 deaths a year. So still right up there at the top three cause of death. Um, and we've finally broken 50% of people having at least one dose. So at 51% adults. of, yeah, of Americans, oh yeah, of American adults yeah. <laughs> um, who have had at least one dose um, with about 41% being fully vaccinated. Um, so still not nearly where we need to be and still lagging. Like we keep dropping behind the rest of the world in terms of the rate of fully vaccinated people. So, you know, for, for, or in terms of the rate of, of, of one dose people. So like we're eighth in the world in terms of fully vaccinated rate, but we're 15th for our one dose dose rate. And that, that will probably keep going down as, uh, as, more people are hesitant to get the vaccine and more vaccines are provided abroad. The CDC keeps putting out new guidelines that lift restrictions. And also I've been noticing there has been a gradual social change. I've been seeing more Mm. and more businesses saying things like, Hey, uh, if you're vaccinated, then go ahead and take your mask off. Yeah. And that's, and that's definitely been nice to see. I still, am mostly wearing a mask when I go out in public. Yeah, me too. But I think that we are starting to see close to the end of that time. I was talking to my dad about this recently. I remember the, the A&P professor, former A&P professor, and he had pointed out that it is getting closer and closer to the point where the decision to not be vaccinated starts to become more of an individual risk rather than a collective Mm. risk meaning that the people that will be at risk will be yourself and other people that aren't vaccinated. That being said, you still do need to take into account the fact that there are some people that for medical reasons might not be able to get vaccinated and they deserve to be protected as well. Uh, You also have to take into account that um, even if less people are getting it, there is still the possibility of variant. Now, that possibility drastically decreases with the number of people that that get vaccinated, but... We are heading in that direction. Yeah, which is, that's that's really great to hear. Yeah, it's true. It's like, it's a little bit weird to, uh, like we keep, we check in on the COVID numbers each week and the progress is slower than we would want. But 50% is most of the way to 70 or 75%. And we've yeah. put out 270 million doses. So like, that's, I mean, these are pretty impressive things i just wish more people would opt into the vaccine what also means that one in two people that you might meet you know probably have all or most protection yeah so it's definitely improving definitely but you know what's not improving the relationship between israel and palestine wow that was that was excellent (laughs) thank you that that one i was proud that was actually really good i probably shouldn't have even commented just gone right into the segment now i've ruined it (laughs) so we are kicking a little bit of a hornet's nest here because 
There is a lot to talk about with regard to Israel-Palestine. And honestly, Michael and I have had private conversations about this Mm -hmm. for a while. And we've been very hesitant to talk about this issue because there is... It's a very complex issue. Yeah. And we don't want to say the wrong things Mm -hmm. and trigger hatred towards innocent people in any way, shape, or form. And we're really trying, we're really doing our best to try to approach this with as much detail and information as we can, as, and as open of a mind, open of minds as we can. Because ultimately, like, as Nation mentioned, it's super complex. The right answer isn't obvious. And it's certainly not simple. Yeah. The answer uh, that is. And so like, you know, I think it's, I think it's all that all of us can do to try to be informed and uh, understand as much of the nuance as possible. And that's what we're trying to do to bring to you guys today. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is there are injustices that are occurring right now. And as the United States, we do directly contribute to it due to international aid that we give to Israel. And because of that, we can't just be silent about this. Mm. We can't just not talk about it just because we're afraid of potential blowback or potential ways in which some of our comments might be misconstrued. So we will try as hard as we possibly can to approach this from an intellectually honest way, to approach this from a research-based way, um, mm-hmm. perspective, and to try to give you as as many details from both perspectives as possible. Yeah. And if you think we're dead wrong, let us know. We'd love yeah. to hear about, like, you know, more information here, as with, as with yeah. all topics that we have on the show. Yeah. We are basing this off of the information that we have looked at at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the information change changes, then our minds are very much open to change. So, with all of that being said, let's talk about this. <laughs> so, the Israel-Palestine conflict goes back to, well, I mean, you could argue that it goes back to the Crusades, but let's go a little <laughs> bit... <laughs> let's start the tape a little bit later than that. Although, let's start the although that's a little the thing, later like, than that. <laughs> like, I think... I think I think it was Trevor Noah who pointed this out. Like, depending on where you start the tape, the situation looks so different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one thing to note here is that, like, just where you begin looking really makes a difference for what the situation looks like on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are taking a the the entirety of world history into account, then you could very much argue that... Israel, the area of Israel, is the ancestral home of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You could very, you could very compellingly make that argument. Uh, let's go ahead and start this closer to a hundred years ago, before the end of World War One. The area we now know as Israel was occupied by the Ottoman Empire, which was an Islamic empire that had ruled most of the Middle East. Now, they had occupied the area known as Palestine. Now, the Ottoman Empire was defeated at the end of World War I. Where it was left at the end of World War I was there was a Jewish minority and an Arab majority. Now, there were tensions between the two of them because, of course, there was. There's always been tensions between Jewish people and uh, Muslims in the Middle East. Yeah. And through a lot of history, that has resulted in, like, Jewish persecution. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That, that is a very important thing to note. And because of that Jewish persecution, uh, the international community had actually given the United Kingdom the responsibility of trying to create a basically a home, a, 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 a Jewish state for the Jewish people, specifically in the area of Palestine. Because now, that was the ancestral home. Yeah, that was the ancestral home. But the issue is, it was being inhabited by Palestinian Arabs who owned a lot of the land. Yeah. And naturally, they opposed the creation of a Jewish state in the land that they had occupied. Now, remember, Jerusalem is at the center of Israel, and it is sacred to, honestly, all three of the major Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, but the idea was... We are establishing this specifically as a Jewish state. So between the 1920s and the 1940s, more and more Jewish people started arriving into the area. Now, a huge part of that was, of course, a major event that happened in the 30s, you know, Nazi Germany. So a lot of them were trying to escape persecution in Europe from Adolf Hitler. But the issue is more and more people were arriving in an area that was already settled by the Palestinians. So in 1947, which was right after World War II, uh, the United Nations voted that Palestine would be separated into a Jewish state and an Arab state. So two states. And Jerusalem would become an international city. So basically, it wouldn't necessarily be owned by either the Palestinian state or the Israeli state. Now, this was initially, this was accepted by Jewish leaders, But the Arab side rejected it. The Palestinians rejected it because the idea was they were having their land taken away from them. And, you know, at this point, Jewish people occupying the land, Jewish people establishing it as a Jewish state was still very new to them. So they thought of it as their land. So they rejected the idea and the two-state solution was never implemented. So one year later, after a two-state solution had failed... Uh, the United Kingdom declared the creation of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And as you can probably imagine, the Arabs in the area, the Palestinians, were fiercely against this, and there ended up being a war. By the end of it, Israel controlled most of the area except the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and part of Jerusalem. So, mm. uh, so... East Jerusalem. And there was never a peace agreement. So there kind of ended up just being more on and off wars throughout it. There was another major war in 1967 in which Israel officially occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank. However, they did not technically occupy Gaza. Although, interestingly enough, the United Kingdom still regards the Gaza Strip as occupied land. Hmm. Now, It is currently controlled by a governing group known as Hamas, which we'll talk more about them later, but there aren't technically Israeli troops within within the border of the Gaza Strip. Now, it is important to note that the Gaza Strip is a very tiny strip. Yeah. It is the most densely populated, it is one of the most densely populated regions in the world. It is 140.9 square miles. Now, to put that into perspective... The smallest state in the United States is Rhode Island. Rhode Island is 1,047 square miles. 
there's approximately 1 million people in Rhode Island and 2 million people in Palestine. Hmm. So again, that's 2 million people occupying an, a land that is 140.9 square miles. That hmm. means that there are 14,184 people for every one square mile. Oh my gosh. So the Gaza Strip is incredibly densely populated. And that, that's going to be important for a point that I'm going to make later. Mm -hmm. So in the past several years, more and more Jews have moved to, uh, to Israel and, and uh, found a home in Israel. However, there have been continuing tensions between the Palestinians, especially within the Gaza Strip, and, and many Palestinians within occupied areas, like in Jerusalem and within the West Bank. And as it stands, Palestinians are quite directly treated as second-class citizens. In fact, according to Amnesty International, Israel still maintains over 65 laws that directly discriminate against Palestinians in mm. terms of allocation of funding, housing discrimination, uh, political discrimination, social discrimination. And Palestinians that are within Israel are given more rights than Palestinians within Gaza, but they're still treated as second-class citizens. Mm. And the justification for it is basically that they are trying to establish a Jewish state. So, so they're intentionally not yeah, making exactly. it comfortable for Palestinians exactly. to settle there. Exactly. Now, well, that's there's definitely more to that argument um, that we will need to go over later. But let's go ahead and let's go ahead and talk about what led to the current problems or the the, the current conflict that has occurred. So, in early May, there were tensions increased due to. Uh, evictions within uh, the West Bank and also within East Jerusalem. So remember how we talked about how there were there were um, like 65 laws on the book that directly discriminate against Palestinians? Mm -hmm. An important thing that often happens in Israel is that in order to be able to have a house in certain parts of Israel, you have to have certain Israel issued permits, which due to the laws on the books, they're virtually impossible for Palestinians to obtain. So they end up getting evicted, forced out of their homes um, as part of, I mean, let's call it what it, what it is, an attempt to create an ethno state. Like, sure. Very intense. I is. mean, very specifically. It's, it's, yeah. And, and it's, no, it's no secret. Like the whole idea of Israel was created by the West in order to create an ethno state. Exactly. So in response to that, and in response to some violence that escalated within the streets during the month of Ramadan between police and Palestinians, uh, Hamas, who, as we talked about earlier, they're currently the main governing force within the Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. launched a bombing campaign against Israel. Now, in that bombing campaign, they launched 4,000 rockets into Israel. Now, it is important to note that Israel has an Iron Dome, which basically intercepts 90% of the deadly projectiles that were launched. Also, they're not really guided missiles. Yeah, they're, they're rockets. Yeah. So 
the idea is try to shoot as many rockets as possible into a densely populated populated area in order to try to kill a certain number of people. Mm-hmm. Now, most of them end up not going off, but you know, even ten percent of four thousand rockets does mean that it is is still a fair amount yeah. of rockets. Yeah, about so, six hundred made it past the defense systems. So this has unfortunately resulted in twelve deaths, which. Let's be fair, and let's call that what it is. You are targeting civilians yeah. in order to make a political point. That is terrorism. Yeah. By and Hamas is, that is recognized like, internationally as yeah. a terrorist organization. And like, Absolutely. is hated by people in the Middle East and around the world. Yeah. <laughs> like Hamas itself is, uh, they, they carry out terrorist acts, bombings, all kinds of stuff. They kill lots of people. So yeah. not so a great group. Yeah, not not the good guys. Not the good Definitely guys. Definitely not the good guys. So, without a doubt, unequivocally, we have to condemn that. Twelve people died. All but one of them were civilians. Two of them were children. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. That is wrong. That is terrorism. But in response to this, rockets were targeted at Gaza, which resulted in 248 people mm. dead. And the thing about and, the thing sorry, about sorry. Israel is that their military is much more advanced. So they're not the same kinds of rockets. They're airstrikes. Yeah. Yeah. And also it's important to note that sixty seven of them were children. Sixty seven. Yeah. Sixty seven children were killed by Israel. Now, let's go ahead and take a step back. And try to look at this argument from both sides. So I want to start with the Israeli side. Mostly because I want to steel man the hell out of it as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. It is 100% true that throughout the course of, let's call it human history, the Jewish people have been oppressed. They have been forced out of their homes. They have been genocided I mean depending on how far back you go they've been enslaved so the idea of creating a state a a place that Jewish people can call their own especially a place that is technically an ancestral home of the Jewish people that is super appealing Mm -hmm. to to an oppressed group even even if you even if they don't live there, even if they never go there, the mm. idea of having Israel as a Jewish place for for a group that is disproportionately targeted for hate crimes around the world is powerful. And we can't underestimate that power. And we also need to point out the fact that there has been an increase in hate crimes against Jewish people in the the weeks surrounding these events around the world. And and we have to unequivocally condemn that. All right. No matter what you think about the Israel-Palestine conflict, targeting Jews with hate crimes around the world is unequivocally terrible. And one of the biggest arguments that is often made to justify the fact that uh, Israel is targeting Um, is targeting Palestinians within Gaza is, number one, the fact that the violence started 
with Hamas. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, at least the, the the civilian targeting of um, of ordnance started with Hamas, and that's true. Hamas fired their rockets first. That is that's just that's factually true. And so what Israel keeps arguing is that when they send rockets back to Palestine, that they only kill civilians because Hamas is purposely using civilians as human shields. So they're purposely putting their rockets in places that are densely populated with lots of civilians in order to deter bombing campaigns or to demonstrate like, hey, look, Israel just killed a bunch of our civilians. They're the bad guys. Mm -hmm. So that's the argument that Israel's making. So they're saying that the bombs that they launch into Gaza are only targeted at Hamas. And the civilian casualties are collateral damage as a result of Hamas purposely using them as human shields. Yeah. On top of that, about half the population of Gaza is children. So the same thing that makes it so easy and effective for Hamas to have rockets in Gaza that are surrounded by tons and tons of civilians that then are collateral damage when Israel you know, puts an airstrike there, even if it's targeted as, as closely as possible at Hamas, is the same thing that like causes a lot more children to be killed there. Dense population, high po- high children population, and so like the collateral damage is particularly terrible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's also important to note, like Michael said, Hamas is not a great group. And, and understatement and also, of the century. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, and when we do go back, uh, like when we talked about when we were talking about the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, there was a time in which Palestine was given a chance to potentially do a two-state solution, and mm-hmm. they rejected it at the, at the time. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because, girl, look at that body. Mm. I work out. Mm-mm-mm. When I walk into the spot, this is what I see. Mm-hmm. Everybody stops and stares at me. Mm. There's a passion in my... You know what? I'm just going to stop right there. <laughs> I feel like that was me before the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I'm sexy and I know it. <laughs> yeah, and that and does also, make the I world like a better place. I like making the world a better place. Everywhere you go, if you're sexy and you know it, or if you just know it. <laughs> if you're sexy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> All right. <sighs> All right. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Well, Nathan, our tip for good this week is super prescient for the topics that we are talking about. And it is that when uh, in life, when you're talking or acting, you should be very careful to separate and clearly delineate when you're talking about people versus when you're talking about states and state actors. So specifically, like... This, this is really prescient right now because 
you know, when when you talk about Israel, you talk about the Jewish people, and you talk about, uh, you know, it's 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 easy for people to, um, you know, think to to hear that as anti-Semitic, and it's easy for you to be anti-Semitic accidentally when you're not clearly delineating those things. The fact yeah. is that it is not the Jewish people that are acting; it is the Israeli government. Yeah. Same with same with the same with the coronavirus and and the increase in anti-Asian hate. Yeah. You know, and the same with like with Trump's demonization of China in general. Yeah. Yeah. The, Look, the Chinese, Chinese government, government does a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're authoritarian. They're terrible, you know? Yeah. They they make people disappear. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the Chinese people are bad. <laughs> that yeah. they that they deserve to be hate crimed around the world. Absolutely. I mean, and of course, as we're going to be talking about in just a bit, this goes for Hamas versus the Palestinians. Yes, yeah. Hamas is a terrorist group. They're the ruling body of the Gaza Strip. That doesn't mean that their civilians deserve to die for what they for what Hamas is doing. Exactly. And that's where this that's why this is so critical. Because when you blur the line between people and their government, you know, people die. Yeah. Not every time you do it in a conversation, but yeah. when, when, <laughs> well, but, well, the rhetoric but like it can have really, it, yeah, exactly. The rhetoric really does contribute to it and it has, it can have really wide reaching yeah. implications. This is why early in the pandemic, Michael and I did a tip for good in which we said, Hey, stop calling it the China virus yeah. or the fucking Kung flu as Trump kept calling it. Like, and the thing is, the thing that we predicted that if you do this, it'll increase tensions against Asian Americans and potentially lead to violence. That fucking came true. Yeah. So words matter. Words matter. Words matter. So target the target the government bodies, the people that are actually doing it, not the entire group that is associated with that government. And that's tips for good. So let's go ahead and look at it from the Palestinian perspective for a sec. Let's let's address each of those points. The first point I want to talk about is sort of to address the the fact that they had initial that they had rejected the two state solution decades ago. So Hamas's new charter has actually said that they accepts the creation of a Palestinian state along the uh, 1967 borders. Now, remember what happened in 1967. That was when there was a war between Israel and Palestine in which Israel occupied the West Bank, which is a much larger region than Gaza, um, and then, of course, uh, East Jerusalem. So the idea would be to establish East Jerusalem the West Bank, and Gaza as a part of the Palestinian state. Now, it is important to note that they are saying that, that they didn't directly call for a two-state solution and that they still believe that the people of Palestine should occupy all of modern-day Israel. But it's also important to note that when we look at the actual implications of the solution that they're calling for, effectively, it is a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. Mustafa Baragadi, uh, the leader of the Palestinian National Initiative, told Al Jazeera 
basically that acceptance, he said, quote, acceptance of a Palestinian state along the 1967 borders means a two-state solution. Hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of people that have, uh, that are, might be suspicious of the intentions of Hamas, rightly so. They are a terrorist group. But that is currently what they are calling for, which would effectively be a two-state two solution. Number two, let's talk about the idea of Hamas using Palestinian civilians as a human shield. So the argument is they're purposely putting ordinance into densely populated areas with the intention of their own civilians dying so that that can either deter the rockets to begin with or upset the international community. But let's think back as to how densely populated Gaza is to begin with. Where are you going to find in Gaza that's not densely populated? Like we said, as it stands, there's over 14,000 people per square mile. Gaza is like, is approximately 140 square miles total. So, I mean, if people are supposed to... to to, to flee or, or, or be in different places to, to avoid these bombing campaigns? What are they supposed to do? What, what are they supposed to jump into the Mediterranean? Like, I, I, I don't know. I, it just, that, like, that doesn't pass the sniff test to me. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing that I think indicts that entire argument is the fact that Israel attacked the Associated Press building in mm-hmm. Gaza. So let's talk about this story for a second, because this, the more I read about this, the more fucked up it really is. So the Associated Press building, which housed uh, about a dozen journalists, was bombed about two weeks ago. Now, they did warn the journalists in the building that this was going to be bombed, which there was actually a video broadcast by the building's owner who is basically pleading over the phone with his early intelligent officers to wait just, just 10 extra minutes to allow journalists to go back into the building to retrieve equipment. So mm. cameras, archives, things like that, before it was bombed, and they just didn't give it to them. And there was this one really depressing quotation where they basically said um, they destroyed their life's work. Mm. In this bomb, the, in this bombing campaign against these, uh, against this building, they destroyed their life's work. Now, no one was killed or injured. That is important to note. To be fair, but they targeted this building knowingly, and they claimed that it had Ham- that it had Hamas ordinance inside it. That was the claim. Now. Immediately, the Associated Press demanded evidence, which they provided none. And the CEO of it, uh, Gary Pruitt, released a statement saying, we would never knowingly put our journalists at risks. This is something we actively check to the best of our ability. Uh, We have no indication that Hamas was in the building or active in Mm. the building. And in response... Netanyahu basically said, oh, yeah, no, we we have that intelligence and and we shared it with the United States Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, to which Anthony Blinken responded by saying, "Uh, no, the fuck they didn't. (laughs) 
Hmm. So, and, and and one of the one of the quotations from the the statement from um from the CEO of Associated Press, which I think is the most telling, is quote, "The world will know less about what is happening in Gaza because of what happens today." Hmm. So look. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, like in this situation, what it looks like is that Israel has been lying about the targeting of Hamas and that the, the, the collateral damage is just, you know, Hamas purposely using civilians as uh, as human shields. And the best way to prevent that from being reported on is to attack, attack the Associated Press building with the justification that Hamas was there. And look, if they are clearly lying about intelligence that said that Hamas was in that building, what else are they lying about? So I, 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 think, that, I think that the intention here is clear as day. They were trying to silence journalism. And the thing is, like, you don't even need to get even even that, like, I mean, I think I think the argument laid out makes total sense, but you don't even need to get that conspiratorial, quote unquote, in order to condemn these actions. Like, yeah, we've got a strong military power in Israel that is willing to accept the deaths of hundreds of people and... um you know, with over 1,900 people wounded um, as just collateral damage that they're willing to accept to, you know, get at Hamas, who is targeting them, but not very effectively. And like we, when we, when that happens, when the United States takes action that has severe civilian casualties, we get blamed for it. Right. Like we get held accountable for those things, or at least we should. Right. Like military powers should show restraint to save civilian lives. It is. Yes, it is a weapon or a defense mechanism that we hand to terrorist organizations, to organizations that hide behind civilians. But it's one that we should because you don't shoot the hostage. Yeah. And also, like, let's. Let's even take Israel at their word, because I think that's an important point. Let's take Israel at their word. That's what I'm saying, yeah. You know, if, like, I mean, I think Kyle Kalinske uh, from Secular Talk actually made this point. I think this is a really interesting point. If we take their word that the, uh, th- th- that Hamas is using civilians as human shields, you, you, if you're the good guys, you don't just blow up the hostage. You don't shoot the hostages. Yeah. I mean, this would be like there's a there's a gunman in a school. This is the this is the analogy that Kyle Klinsky made. There's a gunman in a school, and he he has his guns on children. So the local cops go up to the parents and say, "All right, well, uh, you know, they're using the uh, kids in there as human shields, so we're just going to blow up the school." Mm-hmm. Like, would you accept that? Yeah. Fuck no. Yeah. <laughs> like that. You, like even if we do take them at their word, that's you don't. Just shoot the hostage. Yeah. That's... <laughs> and, and yeah, the, the collateral... It seems to me, from the reading that I've done, that the collateral damage, both of loss of life and also, uh, like, loss of livelihood is 
collateral damage that Israel seems all too ready to accept. So in total, 450 buildings, including hospitals and primary care facilities, were destroyed in Gaza. 52,000 Palestinians were displaced as a result of this particular action. But the thing is, like, this conflict with Hamas has been going on for decades. And so the region itself is a mess because of largely because of these of the blockades that Israel has on goods coming in and out of Gaza and they're doing this you know for for a good military reason if you consider this to be an active military you know occupied space which is that you know goods coming in and out are opportunities for uh you know supplies and weapons to get into the hands of Hamas and so every 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 piece of trade is a risk and as a result they significantly curtail trade and as a result of that in this highly densely populated area people live in really terrible conditions 95 percent don't have access to clean water 80 percent of the population relies on international aid for survival so the thing is like the palestinians in this region lack basic supplies and food and clean water under the best circumstances. And under the worst, they are displaced and they are killed. And all of this is collateral damage. There's got to be some other way, you know, like, yeah, then that's the thing. Like no expert thinks that this ceasefire is going to be the solution because there have been many before. No expert thinks that this situation is close to being resolved. Yeah. But, you know, it's just not tenable to keep accepting this collateral damage. Yeah. As it stands, there have been two solutions that have been discussed. The first one would be a two-state solution, where you basically have the— you go ahead and allow for the creation of the Israeli state, or the the continuation, rather, of the the Israeli state— Um, and then you allow for the creation of a Palestinian state. Because as it stands, the Palestinians are stateless. Yeah. Which already, like, in terms of the international stage, destroys their representation to begin with. So this would be establishing a Palestinian state alongside, uh, alongside Israel. But the problem with that is, number one you still have a lot of Palestinians within Israel that are continuing to be treated as second-class citizens. Number two, there are, there, there are disagreements as to like how clean something like that could be. Are we talking about just Gaza? Well, that's still a really tiny, densely populated swath of land. Are we talking about Gaza and the West Bank? Well, that might be better, but there are a lot of, a lot of Jewish settlers within the West Bank. Which means that if we were doing the two-state solution and we were saying that the West Bank is now part of Israel or is now part of Palestine, then that would be forcing a lot of Jewish people out of their out of their homes. So the other solution that has been presented, which I find really interesting, is just a one-state solution in which you give up on the idea of creating a Jewish state, a solely Jewish state, 
you give Palestinians equal rights and equal representation within the Israeli government, and you stop treating them like, like second-class citizens. Now, the arguments against that, and, and Michael, you might recognize some of these arguments, is that there's so much bad blood because of the last century of conflict between Israel and Palestine that integration between these two ethnic groups would be impossible. You know, there's going to be too much tension. There's going to be too much fighting. There's going to be too much violence. Integration is impossible. Segregation is going to be necessary. Now, where have you heard that argument before? The United States. <laughs> United States. Yeah. Look, United States went through this. And we eventually still decided... Still going through it. <laughs> we're still... Well, we're, 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 we're still going through this, but... but but let's be clear, segregation was legislation. Yeah. And the idea was separate but equal. But we recognize that separate doesn't mean equal. It can't mean equal. So it is important to note that there are still racial tensions in the United States, but they're so much better than they were in the 60s. Mm -hmm. They're still bad. There still needs, there's still so much that needs to be done, but we are working towards solutions. So if there was a one state solution for Israel and Palestine, I'm not saying that it would be clean. I'm not saying that things would be perfect, but think about it this way. 1964 was when the civil rights act was passed in the United States. In 2008, we elected our first black president that didn't solve every issue but that was still a major step forward. And if the United States can do it, why not Israel and Palestine? And the last point that I want to make, you know, and I know that this is a super long segment. This is probably the longest segment. But it's ever worth done. it. <laughs> it's worth it. The last point that I want to make on this issue is the veil of ignorance. Mm. So I t we talked about earlier about the appeal of the creation of a state, a, a, a land that Jewish people can call their own. A, a, an oppressed people having a place that they can call their own. No matter where they live in the world, they know that they have a home. Hmm. We talked about how important that is, how powerful that is. But let's look at this from the point of view of the, of the veil of ignorance. So remember, the veil of ignorance is basically where you get to design a state and you get to decide how it's economically made up, how it's socially made up. You get to decide everything about it, what the laws are going to be, who is given what advantages. But the catch is you don't get to decide who you're born as. So here's my question to you. If we apply the veil of ignorance, would you create a state like Israel the way it is right now and risk being born Palestinian. I don't think you would. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Asshat, asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is one of our favorite up and coming freshman asshats. 
Marjorie Taylor, Jewish Space Lasers Green. Wow, man, you're getting really good at that. To be fair, at this point, she might she might be in contention for ass out of our lives. She's an ass that keeps on hatting. She's been on the show yeah. like four or five times. She rivals Tucker Carlson. Yeah. For... She rivals Tucker Carlson. I think she's already surpassed Tom Cotton at this point. I think so. I think so. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> she surpasses both of them in, in, in nutso world. Yeah. Brain. Well, and also I would breaking are you, are arguably danger too because she yeah. like tucker carlson yeah like he has a microphone she has a vote in congress uh, yeah. she can write laws yeah she can true. pass well, legislation the governor <laughs> <laughs> or read yeah <laughs> or but no you don't need to read more than like 180 characters yeah so what did marjorie taylor jewish space lasers green do michael oh my god she you know she really leaned into her her heritage as as a, a Jewish space laser advocate <laughs> for this one. Um, so she was talking about the um, the can, ongoing mandate in the House for representatives that aren't vaccinated to wear masks. She was on a conservative network called Real Real America's Voice um, on a show called The Water Cooler with David Brody, which yeah, the water cooler just that's that's a show you trust, you know. Um, And she said, quote, referring to Nancy Pelosi, quote, this woman is mentally ill. You know, we can look back in time in history where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second class citizens. So much so that they put them in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. (laughs) Um, So... uh Miss uh, Jewish Space Lasers lady? Uh, Counterpoint. No, it's fucking not. No, it's not. (laughs) Well, so like, so so let's start from tiny to big. Jesus fucking Christ. Small things to big things. First of all, it's not a gold star. It's not, it's not, they don't, they don't, it's not a, it's not a fucking. It's a star of David, you fucking idiot. It's a star of David. It's a yellow star. It is not like a, yeah. At, uh, yeah, God the Nazis were handing out, oh, you're Jewish gold yeah. star. What the fuck, you, you idiot? Oh, my God. Okay, also, just because you say mentally ill instead of other derogatory words, when you use that as an insult, it is an insult. Yes. <laughs> you are you are being you are perpetuating like ableism. You're not you're not being PC just because you say mentally ill instead of some other word. So fuck yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, mentally ill because she's saying, hey, look, because like 50% of you fucking idiot Republicans have decided not to get vaccinated, we're all still going to wear masks because we don't want to die. Yeah, that makes cr- her mentally ill. Obviously, that's mentally ill. Obviously. And, and now on to the, the more important stuff. I mean, as someone who is mentally ill, I got to say, when I see a mask, I just I have a fetish for it. You know, I just want to see other people have it. If I don't see other people wearing masks, like I get, I get really agitated. And I just start punching people because of I'm because I'm mentally ill. That's I just I just have a thing for masks. That's exactly what she's talking about. That's exactly what. <laughs> Jesus fucking. And finally, having to wear a mask so that you don't infect the people around you because you're not vaccinated is not the same as being murdered. I can't believe I have to say that. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. Um, it's no, it's not at all the same. In in no way is it the same. 
It's not at all the type of abuse. Well, well hold, abuse. hold on, hold on, Michael. Hold on, Michael. To be you're, fair to her, you're right, you're right. she's not saying that wearing a mask is the same as being put in gas chambers. Sure. She's saying that it will lead, it will lead to, to yeah, being put in gas slip, chambers. This might be the, the most <laughs> reach of a slippery slope I've ever heard. <laughs> Have to wear a mask? Going to be genocided. Fuck you, Marjorie Taylor's Jewish space and, lasers. Green. And before before anybody like before anybody says, oh, maybe she just misspoke. Nope. She later clarified and doubled down, and she was just like, no, I didn't say anything wrong. Yeah. What? Yeah. And and later on, <laughs> later on, she made the same comparison in a different context when talking about grocery stores that were allowing their employees not to you know wear masks if they had a little logo that said they were vaccinated. And she then she she tweeted out that uh, that vaccinated employees get a vaccination logo just like the Nazis forced Jewish people to wear a gold star. Yeah, yeah. Good. And she basically said that any like like any reasonable Jewish person would 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 understand this and not be offended by this. What the fuck? <laughs> she is the worst. She is she so crazy. Is... I can't believe she is one of the most powerful people in the United States. So a deep and hearty congratulations to Marjorie Taylor Jewish Space Lasers Green for being our Asshat, Asshat of, of the, the Week. week. <laughs> okay, so for our last segment, we wanted to provide a bit of an update on the Capitol riots, what's kind of happened since January 6th, and use that to set the stage and a bit of the context behind um, a discussion of the January 6th commission. So if you'll recall, the January 6th riots was basically a, a bunch of crazy Trumpsters that invaded the Capitol, uh, threatened to kill the vice president, and also many elected individuals, including Republicans, um, there are videos and, and images of several Republicans and Democratic politicians having to brace doors yeah. and barricade themselves uh, at several points. Um, Mitch McConnell has actually blamed Trump for the riots, even went so far as to say that uh, at one point that uh, charges should be considered against him. Mm -hmm. um, so naturally, when creating the, when, when forming, rather, the, uh, the, the commission, um, Kevin McCarthy had a few demands. You know, he had a, he had a few demands for Nancy Pelosi. The, the, the three demands were uh, an equal 5-5 ratio in appointments by Democrats and Republicans, co-equal subpoena power between the chair, which would be a Democrat, and the vice chair, which would be a Republican, and no inclusion of findings uh, or other predetermined conclusions, which ultimately should be rendered by the commission itself. And Nancy Pelosi gave into all three of these. So naturally, because Republicans were given all that they wanted, and because Republicans have already condemned the riots, and because Republicans recognize the fact that when an insurrection happens, which puts their own lives in danger, a commission like this is needed. So naturally, they passed it immediately, right, Michael? <sighs> I, 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 I'm a little bit nervous by that sigh. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. No, no, they didn't. They didn't so much as pass it as, as kill it, it huh. right away. Yep. 
not in the House, obviously, because we don't need the Republicans in the House, but but in the Senate, by the time it made it there, uh, with 35 Republican senators voting against it, it was filibustered and uh, is dead. So just to be clear, a vote was 54 to 35. And the 35 won the vote. Yeah. Yeah, that's democracy. <laughs> <laughs> and and so let's take a minute to like think about like what the commission is for, right? So like because the arguments against it are crap. So yeah. So so one of the main arguments that came out early on is that it's not necessary that the commission is redundant to other efforts, right? So like, well, we had an impeachment trial already to look into Trump. Um, we already have criminal investigations. We've got an internal investigation into the Capitol Police issues. So, like, what, what's it, why is it needed? Well, the answer is that this commission is designed to be a comprehensive, root-to-stem look at the threat of domestic insurgency in America. Yeah. It is charged specifically with issuing a report containing recommendations for corrective measures to prevent future acts of domestic terrorism. Um, yeah. and, and the legislation is specifically aimed, um, to, uh, improve the security of the United States Capitol complex, making sure to preserve accessibility to the Capitol for all Americans, but strengthen the security and resilience of the nation and American democratic institutions against domestic terrorism. So like, also Republicans don't get to make that argument. Did yeah, you know well, that yeah. they spent more time investigating Benghazi? Than they did 9-11. Mm. Like, I'm sorry, Republicans. You don't get to make that fucking argument. Yeah. You lost the right to make that argument. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's totally true. But but like even even apart from that, it's like we clearly need this. Like there's clearly yeah. a hole here. Yeah. Like the Department of Homeland Security has been coming out with reports after reports that like domestic terrorism terrorism is a growing problem and growing threat. Right. Like we we literally saw an attempted insurrection that got further than anyone would have expected. There are clear holes here. And and we're seeing literal conspiracy theorists at the reins of power in the United States, a commission looking at how we make our nation robust to domestic terrorism, robust to insurgency is really important. And the thing is, like, it's not like this would be just flooded with a bunch of Congress people. Like, these are specific. It was specifically that committee members um, would, you know, aim to answer a broad range of questions and include experts on law and government and civil rights and technology and all of these things, so we could get like a really comprehensive answer. Yeah. But the and problem look, is that it makes Trump look bad. Yeah. And look, I. I understand if, if the fear was legitimately, hey, we don't want this to become a, you know, a, a partisan game. Yeah. Like, we don't want this to just be, hey, let's find everything we possibly can to hurt Republicans. Mm -hmm. I Look, if that is a legitimate concern because I'm more interested in the truth than I am in hurting Republicans. Yeah. But the thing is, it was already, like, all three demands that Kevin McCarthy had originally proposed— as a way to avoid that, again, co-equal representation by Democrats and Republicans, 
co-equal subpoena power between the vice chair and the chair, a Democrat and a Republican, mm. and not allowing the inclusion of findings or other predetermined conclusions. Like, yeah. those were included. Yeah. There were safety measures put in that the Republicans asked for to prevent this from becoming a partisan, a partisan game. Yeah. And the thing is, like, but, but I mean, that's the thing. They know that the more this is in the news, the more it hurts them politically. Uh, yeah. and, and they know that because they clearly know that Trump was at least partially, if not wholly, at fault for instigating this thing. And that in the investigation, investigating it will be a problem. Because yeah. if, they, if they really believed what they say about it not being his fault, or at least you know the most ardent Trump loyalists say that it wasn't his fault, then they would want this commission to clear that up if they really believed that it was blm and antifa that like caused this this riot then they would want this commission to find that out but that the fact really that point. there are like key witnesses to trump's actions who are voting members voting against this thing makes yeah. you wonder and i actually i i want to i want to go back to that point that michael made about how a bunch of them were trying to make the argument that this was uh Antifa or mm -hmm. BLM. There, there are three specific examples that I want to point to. Uh, first off is uh, Representative Paul Gosar, who made the claim that the Capitol storming had, quote, all the hallmarks of Antifa provocation. <laughs> uh, Representative Mo Brooks, who said, quote, there, are some, there is some indication that fascist Antifa elements... Wait, what? Fascist Antifa... <laughs> <laughs> I, did. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about that. Oh my god! What the you mean, fascist anti-fascists? I'm fascistly anti-fascist. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds <laughs> like stupid. a song from uh, the producers, like the musical they produce in that called wow. you know Springtime for Hitler. I'm yeah. a fascist anti-fascist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't like the first time I read that. I oh, didn't even hilarious. realize that. I just. Okay, anyway, the, the quotation says, um, there is some indication that fascist Antifa elements were involved, that they embedded themselves as Trump, that they embedded themselves in the Trump protests. And then the third one from Matt Gates, which we've definitely talked about on the program before, uh, that um, he, he made the claim that there was a facial recognition company that had evidence of, quote, Antifa infiltrators, infiltrators, and all three of those representatives that I just listed voted voted against the commission. Mm -hmm. So, this really does show you that they've been lying out of their ass cheeks the entire time. Mm. I mean, if they truly did believe that Antifa or BLM was involved, you'd want a commission that was bipartisan, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean. Look, look, if they were involved, I want to know that. Like, if, 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 if there, were, there were leftist people that were trying to purposely make Trump supporters look bad, I would want to know that. But as it stands, none of the evidence points to that. But they're making those claims anyway, while at the same time voting against an investigation that would verify their claims if they were true. Yeah. And 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 this commission is really really important. Like we really want to have a nation that is robust to terrorism and insurgency. That is should be a, a fundamental goal of everyone. And the fact that they are willing to just 
disregard that for political expediency is absolutely unacceptable. John Thune, uh, like McConnell's like number two guy, said, quote, Anything that gets us rehashing the 2020 elections, I think, is a day lost on being able to draw a contrast between us and the Democrats' very uh, radical left-wing agenda. Saying the quiet part out loud, we don't want to talk about this because the more we talk about this, you know, the more it distracts from us, like, trying to demonize Democrats. And, but, like, this riot was a big fucking deal. 140 officers were injured. An officer was murdered. In the last four months, 494 people have been arrested for their participation in the riot. The FBI has received more than 270,000 digital, digital media tips to identify participants in the riot. They believe, officials believe that there were around 800 people who participated. And so we're just over halfway, halfway to prosecuting everyone that should be prosecuted. Extremist groups, Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, were working together to plan this attack. And that is according to um, the FBI. Like, multiple people from these groups have been arrested. 59 alleged rioters were from these organizations that, that were stirring up the other hundreds of people to riot. And and so far, one person has pleaded guilty to charges that have a maximum sentence of up to 30 years in prison. These are this is a serious thing. These people attempted to overthrow the United States government by attacking their representatives. That is not a joke. That is not something to be lightly tossed aside, and it's not something to pretend like is like it's not a big deal just because it's politically expedient. The fact that the people who literally barricaded themselves behind doors are now saying that, you know, you wouldn't notice anything different from a, a normal day of tourists in the Capitol building makes me absolutely sick that these people are still in office. I just want to read something that the mother of the slain officer said. This is Gladys Sicknick. She said, quote, putting politics aside, wouldn't they want to know the truth of what happened on January 6th? If not, they do not deserve to have the jobs they were elected to do. This is, I mean, honestly, that's, that's a very measured response. I would say like if I, yeah, you know, from, from the mother of someone who was murdered during this Capitol riot. Look, all of these Republicans are always chanting things like back the blue, blue lives matter. And the thing is when they chant that stuff, it's not an attempt to actually solve a problem. It's not an attempt to try to save the lives of police officers. It's an attempt to distract attention away from black people with legitimate grievances. Because if it was a legitimate movement to acknowledge the fact that many police officers have lost their lives in the line of duty, they would be 
all over this commission. Mm. But this demonstrates that they're a bunch of fucking frauds. Look, I have my critiques of police officers, of the system of policing in the United States, but this police officer did his job. He lost his life doing his job. And many police officers were injured trying to do their jobs, trying to protect these motherfuckers that when called upon to investigate the, the riots that threatened the lie, that threatened their own lives in which they had to call upon law enforcement to protect them. When it came to that, too few of them actually voted for it. Not enough voted for it to actually make it happen. Many of them cowered like a bunch of sick fucking shysters. So I, I honestly, I, I hope that Democrats use the fuck out of this vote in the midterms, yeah. that they talk about it, that they hammer away at this. This should be something that we do not let go. Yeah. We cannot let this go. And also, Hey, Joe Manchin, you know how you've been talking about the need for bipartisanship, how you still believe in bipartisanship? What do you believe now? You still think we need the filibuster? You still think that we need to include Republicans in these negotiations when they won't even, like, they won't even allow for a bipartisan investigation into an insurrection that, in which they were the targets? Look, Joe Manchin, if that doesn't convince you to drop the filibuster, I don't know what the fuck will. And so with that, we'll end as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight is actually one of the reasons why we weren't able to, uh, to record last week, which is that last Wednesday was my three-year wedding anniversary mm. with Jess. Congratulations. And we had a nice night out uh, in which we um, went to one of the local restaurants that we really like, and it was super sweet and super romantic, and man, you know, I like being married to her. It's kind of <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, marriage is awesome. <laughs> so, Michael, what's, what's your highlight? Well, speaking of marriage, my highlight is actually that my brother Chris got eloped on Saturday, and I was able I to go that. and... Uh, be there for it and have a, a really wonderful time celebrating them and their relationship. So that was really I saw awesome. that. Yeah, congratulations, Chris. Yeah. Congrats. Shout out to longtime listener Chris Bloom. Uh, yeah. Much love, brother. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again 